Well, we are going now. We are into the redeemed humanity body of work. In this project, we are now into the six complementarian proof texts, which are the six passages of the Bible that complementarians point to to say this is why we believe that um, women should not have certain roles in the church or in the home. But I just also wanted to say thanks for continuing to stick with this. I hope that you are diligently searching the scripture and going to the Lord in prayer um, as you go through this, whether you are agreeing with the things that I'm interpreting or not. Hopefully this at least is a challenge to you to get into the Bible and study it at a rich and deep level. Uh, last time when we did that, we saw that 1 Timothy is not actually all about women's and men's roles in the church. It's actually about the gospel being advanced in the church in ways that are wise and also peaceable to the community. And so this time we're going to turn our focus to 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36. So as we begin our study of this next passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36, I'm going to give a quick overview of the historical context in which it is set. This is the first known letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very wealthy and also religiously eclectic port city in ancient Rome. Paul established this church, which you can read about in Acts 18, and he stayed there for a year and a half to support its early life. After moving on to other cities and churches, Paul got some reports about certain things that were not going well in the Corinthian church. And this letter is Paul's response to those problems. So once again, I want to note that all this historical context, it can actually be found within the Bible itself. Now, we can move over to a quick synopsis of the whole letter, which it's going to provide us some of the literary context that we need to understand this passage. Paul divides his letter in a very straightforward way, with each section addressing one of the problems that he heard about in the reports. His structure in each section is the same, and it goes something like this. One, an acknowledgement of the reported problem. And then two, pointing the church to a truth about the gospel of Jesus. And then three, explaining how that gospel truth can be applied to resolve the problem. And, you know, that's basically what we're doing right here and right now. So here's a quick summary of each of the problems and how and where he addresses them. Chapters 1 through 4 are addressing some divisions that were occurring within the church because people were only listening to the teachers and speakers that they preferred. So Paul's response is that the community of the church, it's supposed to be reunited around Jesus, not divided over favored personalities. And then chapters 5 through 7 are all about the sexual immorality going on in the church and the fact that some people were excusing it on the basis of God's endless grace. But Paul reminds them that Jesus paid the price for sin, so they should not take lightly the weight of that which he bore upon his shoulders for them. Paul then goes on to remind them that their bodies, they're going to be resurrected with Christ. So if our bodies are going to be raised up, we should treat them with respect and integrity today. Chapters 8 through 10 are about a dispute that the church was having regarding whether or not they should eat certain kinds of meats that have been sacrificed in temples to other gods. 
Paul directs them to be as publicly clear as possible in their allegiance to Jesus. So if there's anything like eating food sacrificed to idols that might confuse their neighbor about where they're giving their allegiance, they should avoid doing it. Their actions should always be moved by Christ's love for God and for others. So then chapters 11, which is where ours occur through 14, it's all about the weekly worship gathering. So chapters 11 through 14, which is where our passage occurs, was all about the weekly worship gathering. Their gatherings were getting chaotic and disorganized because people were speaking and prophesying over one another without any semblance of order. But Paul says that the church should function not chaotically, but in harmony, like a human body, each member performing its function for the building up of the church. And what's more, every aspect of the weekly gathering should be compelled by the love of God and others, rather than getting one's own time in the spotlight or just having some spiritual high experience. Chapter 15 is about the reality of the resurrection. Some people in the church were trivializing the resurrection and saying it is not a vital part of the gospel. Paul, however, says that the resurrection is indeed an indispensable part of the gospel and tells the church that they must hold on to its literal truth. For Paul, it's the thing that gives the church their hope, their worldview, and the strength they need to live in the ways Paul has called them to in the previous sections. And the last chapter closes the letter with some thoughts on the collection of money that Paul is taking up with the church in Jerusalem and some details about his imminent plans and a personal greeting from those people who are with him. So now that we've got a literary context that gives us the structure of the letter, we can note that there's one main piece of biblical context that we're going to need for verse 34. In 1134, Paul makes mention of the law. And the interesting thing about this reference is that Paul does not mention what specific part of the law he's referring to. And this leads some, such as N.T. Wright in his podcast, Ask N.T. Wright Anything, to believe that Paul is once again referring to the order revealed in the law of Genesis 2. This understanding makes a lot of sense because he has referred to that same passage in, you know, like the letter we just went over, and it seems to be his main argument for why women need to be subject or submissive in the context of the worship gathering at the time of his writing. So with that said, we will once again be utilizing the work that we've already done regarding Genesis 2 and Paul's interpretation of it as our biblical context. Another possibility for the word law, though, in verse 34, is brought up in Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and that's that Paul is actually quoting a specific Roman law that the Corinthians would have been very familiar with that prevented women from speaking in a public setting. But I'm actually just going to defer that section of the topic to her work. So if you're interested in that, go check out Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood.
One final piece of historical context that in that same episode N.T. Wright brought up in his podcast is that it's quite possible and probable even that women in the first century were not only undereducated as regards the Torah and philosophy, but also lacking Koinea Greek, which was used in the worship gatherings. So they may not have even been able to understand the teaching until they got home to ask their Koinea Greek speaking husband and then have them interpret it into the common language. This knowledge is going to help us make sense of what Paul is saying in verse 35. With the context now in our hand for the passage, we're going to examine the structure of our text. It's clear that this section of Paul's argument does not begin at verse 34, but actually backs up all the way to verse 26. When we begin there, we're going to see that Paul is hinging off the previous section to continue to give instruction regarding the worship gathering and how it should be conducted. Previously, he was addressing some members of the body who were speaking in tongues, but to no sort of edification for the church body. So Paul continues on in this section, starting in verse 26, saying, Here are some guidelines to maintain order during the worship gatherings and to ensure that the body is always being edified during the worship rather than confused by the chaos. He then goes on to lay out some guidelines in verses 27 through 32 that can be summed up like this. Whatever gift you do bring to the gathering, it should only be used for the building up of and also being checked by the other members of the body. Tongues must have interpreters. Prophecies must be subject to prophets. And everyone who wishes to speak should just take their own turn. Why should the gathering function according to these principles? Verse 33 gives us the answer, because God is bringing peace and not disorder into the world. Paul then continues stressing order in the worship gathering with a note about the women's behavior in verse 34 through 36. Here is his instruction, and it follows this line of thought. Women should remain silent in the gathering. Instead of speaking, they should subject themselves to the teaching being given, which is what the law said. But since they may not be able to understand the teaching at the gathering, if a woman does want to learn, she should do so by asking her husband to teach her about it at home. For it would be shameful for her to speak in the church gathering without having properly learned first. And that is what Genesis 2 taught us, remember? Did the word of God go forth from you or did it come from you? Once again, there's this logical flow that only makes sense if we bring along that interpretation of Genesis 2. Paul's saying that the women in those first century churches should stay silent in the gatherings and subject themselves to the teaching that's being given because of that law. What does the law say? Well, he concludes in verse 36 by restating, The law says that it's shameful for a woman to speak without having submitted to proper teaching. Once again, Paul is trying to protect the church from shame and error that would result from women hastily wielding their newfound equality without first being educated. 
To make his point, he once again references Genesis and reminds them that the Lord's teaching did not come forth from woman or be given to her, but to the man. So when the woman did not submit to the full teaching that the woman passed on to her, she was deceived. Just like we saw in 1 Timothy, Paul's instruction to women at that time was to learn in a space that allows them to fully receive the teaching that they need before attempting to speak up in the gathering and so bring shame to the church by teaching out of a deception caused by their lack of education. And this time he's actually giving a specific space, that being the home with their husbands. But again, that space is not the worship gathering at this time. And remember that women, they may not have been able to understand the teaching because of their lack of education as it actually just regards the language. So what should they do? Verse 35 is Paul's answer, wait till you get home and ask your husband to teach you what is being taught. And notice that Paul doesn't simply say, ask your husband to teach you, but ask your husband at home home. This is a key piece to understanding why Paul says what he's saying here, because this section is about keeping order in the gathering, remember? That's where he's hinging this whole thing off of with the tongues and the prophecies. Paul wants women to learn, and he even tells them to do so at home from their husbands. But He knows that their education, their deficiency in that way, it's going to create an environment that no one could actually be edified because there's so many clarifying questions being asked and interpretation having to be gone on. Paul's solution is to maximize time in the gathering by having women stay quiet while they're there, but also he's creating a space for them to learn at home where they would not be disrupting the order of worship. So after addressing the clear problems that women faced in the first century church gathering, Paul warns the Corinthians in verse 37 and 38 to heed all these guidelines about orderly worship because they are from the Lord. He then closes by restating his purpose for this section in verse 39 through 40 by saying, So it is good to prophesy and to speak in tongues, but do it all in a way that is proper and orderly before moving on, I want to again use this section to show the importance of grounding biblical interpretation in proper and sufficient exegetical work. Without doing this work, this passage becomes impossible to use for the good of the church or to point to the glory of Jesus. Once again, I'm just so thankful that I've never heard a pastor insist on a literal interpretation of this entire passage that would prevent women from speaking at all on Sunday mornings, but Unfortunately, I know that it does happen. But I have heard pastors refer to this passage when backing their complementarian views, but then walking back on some of these, you know, women should be silent parts. This is part of the problem I've noticed with complementarian interpretation of these texts. It tends to point to some scripture as if it's absolutely clear regarding God's intent for women in the church, but then they're forced to acknowledge that either, well, Paul doesn't totally mean what he says, or he does mean it, but we just don't really apply those parts anymore in our context. Proper exegesis, it just removes this tension. 
It's not an easy way out, but it's rather the intended way forward. This section, it's about order in the gathering. So that's how we should read this section too. So what's the author's aim based on everything we've done? Well, I think it's probably clear at this point. He's giving us his purpose statement in verses 39 and 40, and it's the why that he gives for verse 33. When you gather, use your spiritual gifts for the edification of the church in a way that's orderly, because our God is the God of peace and order, so our church gatherings should model that. One great thing about this passage is that verse 33 explicitly lays out the theology that's motivating Paul's words in this section. Paul believes that the God he serves is a God of peace and not disorder. So since Paul already seems to be referencing Genesis in verse 34, I think it's fair to say that Genesis would also be a good place to turn regarding God's nature as one who brings peace and order. The spirit that worked peace into creation is now working within the church who are new creations and moves us to live by his order and his peace and demonstrate it in our gatherings. Of course, the full revelation of God's order and peace, it's only found in Jesus. It is only because of Jesus that the world may know order and peace, because he defeated sin and Satan, the sower of discord, and he conquered death, which was peace's true adversary. So turning one chapter over to chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, it reveals a deeper look into the theology that Paul's unpacking about Jesus's resurrection, and Paul is pointing to it as the reason for his instructions here for the Corinthian church. It's this understanding of the resurrection that moves Paul's application in every single section of the letter. So it should be the center point from which we preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians every single time, and the root of which our application and implications should grow out of. With all of this work done, we can finally move on to a quick sermon outline that for me has three points in an application section that I would structure like this. First point, I would begin with verse 26, making Paul's point that the church gathering in Corinth was becoming about individuals just doing their own thing for religiosity's sake but continuing into verses 27 and 32, that it's actually intended to be the place where everyone brings their gifts before the Lord and toward one another to build up the church. I would then reiterate that our weekly gatherings are still for the building up of the church to the glory of Jesus. So if our hearts aren't there, we need to humbly repent and then ask the congregation to consider What am I bringing to build up the church and glorify God? How am I gifted for that purpose? I would then ask the question, well, why is this the way that the church ought to function? 
What's the heart behind it? And I would show that Paul's belief is because of the gospel. I would then follow his lead and preach the gospel of Jesus's resurrection, starting with verses 33 and then turning to chapter 15, 20 through 28. And maybe Genesis, if I have time to show just how Jesus is the fulfillment of the plan that was set out from the beginning for peace and order. I would then move towards a theological application that God desires his church to be one that lives out of the peace he has won and he's given it to us. So we give him glory by submitting ourselves to his rule and reign. I would then use that last part about giving him glory by submitting ourselves to him to transition into verses 34 through 38, and I would carefully walk through it. I'd explain the why behind Paul's words in the first two verses by pulling on that context that we've already discussed, and I would do that to point out that he is not, again, banning women from participating in worship, but warning those in Corinth of the danger and shame that comes with jumping up to teach without first being humble and patient enough to be taught the full truth of Jesus from those who have already received it and are teaching it properly. As we saw in chapter 15, 20 through 28, Jesus does not take the kingdom for his own, but he gives it over to the glory of the Father. So we should do the same in the church. I would then conclude this section by giving the same warning that Paul does in 37 and 38. And this could be its own point, honestly. But my conclusion would wrap up with verses 39 and 40, showing again that Paul doesn't want to have his previous points discourage the Corinthians from using their gifts. He simply wants them to approach their gatherings with humility and employ their gifts for the good of the body to God's glory. In this, I would encourage my congregation that they too have been gifted by the Spirit and serve Jesus. So like Paul says, eagerly pursue those good things while examining your own heart and walking humbly alongside the brothers and sisters in the same way. We can see that this section, when it's properly exegeted and interpreted, it's so practical for the church, and it can open up very specific conversations around what is meant to occur when we gather together. Are our gatherings feeling chaotic or disorderly? Are we using our gifts to build it up? This section actually sets up helpful frameworks for the church to work within that keep us healthy by ensuring that we're pointing towards those things by using our gifts for the good of others and being grounded in the truth of the gospel, all while encouraging us that we are gifted by the Spirit to build one another and give glory to God by demonstrating His peace and order in our gatherings. All right, so we cruise through 1 Corinthians, and I hope that you were tracking. Take some time to go back, reread it for yourself now that you've got this context, and see how it sticks and how it lands for you. I hope that you're encouraged that our gatherings as a church, as a local body, they're important, that we should be demonstrating God's order and peace to the world, and that you have a way to contribute to that, that your gift brought into the church is for its building up to the glory of God. So ask yourself, what am I bringing that's building up my brothers and sisters around me? Thanks again so much, and we're going to go into Ephesians next time.